This is episode number 27 with a pioneer in the field of neuroleadership and author of The Leading Brain, Frederike Fabricius, all the way from Dusseldorf, Germany. Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets SEL podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi, a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high-performance strategies in schools, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. Today we have an inspiring speaker who I've been following for the past three years. Frederike Fabricius is a neuroscientist and pioneer in the field of neuroleadership. She trained at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research and is an alumna of McKinsey & Company, helping organizations to create change. Frederike delivers brain-based leadership programs to Fortune 500 executives and organizations around the globe to transform how they think, innovate, and navigate change. Her book, The Leading Brain, Neuroscience Hacks to Work Smarter, Better, Happier, has been translated into several languages and has received numerous awards. Her most recent presentation this year was at Talks at Google, where she describes the recipe for achieving peak performance. Hi. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, absolutely. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. A warm welcome from Arizona all the way um, to Germany where you are today. Yeah. So diving into our first question, Frederica, I first found you on YouTube. I was actually searching for a way to understand how our neurotransmitters work in peak performance. Can you explain what we need to do to get into that peak performance or flow state, whether we're an employee in our workplace, an athlete in the field, or a student in the classroom? Yeah, I'd love to do that. So, you know, only 20% of people feel passionate about their jobs. That's insane. And and 40% of people never experience flow in their jobs. And I think It could be so simple that everybody can be happy at their jobs. And all you need are three simple things. And I like to call them fun, fear, and focus. And it has to do with a certain mix of neurochemicals into your brain. So when we're having fun at work, I'm not thinking about the after work party kind of fun where you have fun after the work finally is done. I'm thinking about having fun related to the task at hand. And when we're having fun, our brain releases a neurochemical called dopamine. And dopamine is a real brain booster. It makes you think faster. It makes you learn faster. It helps you to do everything a bit speedier and better. It makes us more creative. So It's not just nice to have, to have fun at your job. It's essential in order to reach peak performance because we need that flow of dopamine. And, you know, how can you have more fun at work? I think it's really important that you choose the kind of work that's in line with your talents. Because let's say if I was to work as a computer programmer, I would probably have zero fun because I have no talent, right? And I would do all the jobs that my smart colleagues are doing in two seconds. It would take me two hours and I would be frustrated. So find something that is strength-based. If we follow our strength and our passion, the likelihood of releasing dopamine will really increase. And the second thing we need is fear. And when I speak of fear, I'm not thinking about having an awful boss, you know, that gives you negative feedback and that 
gives you such a hard time that you can't even sleep anymore at night. I'm thinking about being what I like to call slightly over-challenged. So how, because when we're slightly over-challenged, our brain releases noradrenaline and noradrenaline is like a wake-up call for our brain. Okay. It tells our brain, wake up, something important is going on here. You need to get into peak performance mode because our brain is not going to do that just for boring routines, such as writing your emails or sitting in a boring meeting. Your brain is smart. It's not going to think, oh, a boring meeting. Let's go into peak performance. So, you know, there need to be some kind of challenge and it's a bit, little bit too difficult for you. So you need to always think about, you know, if your job doesn't make you a bit nervous, if everything is just easy and you can do it, if somebody wakes you up at 3 a.m. and you know, shakes you, if you can just do it half asleep, then you're not on the right line. You need to be slightly over challenged to get that kick of noradrenaline. And the third thing you need is focus because it's impossible for our brain to reach peak performance unless we are fully focused because our prefrontal cortex for rational thinking that's right here behind our forehead needs focus. And when we are fully focused, our brain releases a substance called acetylcholine. And that is like a spotlight. You know, it highlights your most important tasks and everything else remains in the dark. So it's actually quite simple. If you, you know, I, I used to call this model the DNA of peak performance, which was an acronym for dopamine or adrenaline acetylcholine. But people find that hard to remember, of course. So I renamed it into fun, fear, and focus, which is actually what you have to do. And the key is not necessarily to change who you are, but to realize you are the way you are and you need to change your workplace so that you can have fun. You need to find an environment where you're naturally happy, where you enjoy what you do. If you're not challenged enough, you need to find the right level of challenge the same applies, of course, if you're overly stressed, then you need to reduce that. So for, 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 for fear, there's a certain sweet spot. And focus will follow naturally. Most people who lack focus at work are unfocused because their job lacks meaning and is boring. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they are checking their emails instead or looking at scrolling on Instagram because they're bored. So if you find yourself distracted, try to do things that are more important to you and this will be fixed. That's powerful because we've all been in jobs that weren't the right ones and, and we yeah. know not the right ones and it's making that decision to make the switch. So yeah, that's a way to recognize it. Yes. And you can add much more value because when this mix of neurochemicals happens in your brain, you can be up to five times more productive. That's a lot. You know, we always think that you're most productive if you spend long hours in the office. You can spend much less hours in the office, adding more value to your organization if you have the right mix of neurochemicals in your brain that make you think faster, better, happier. Right. So let's say we're in flow, everything's great. We're like, yay, I'm doing flow and we're being productive. What can throw us out of flow? Well, I would say all kinds of distractions. You know, it could even be, it was so funny. I had, um, I had this video thing this morning and there was a makeup stylist, you know, like a hairstylist. And, and she said the other day she was styling a bride 
and she was in her flow applying makeup on the beautiful bride and then these bridesmaids they kept asking like oh is does that make her eyes look small you know is this makeup right for her are you sure the hair should be like this and that threw her off balance because she's an expert and experts need to rely on their intuition there's such a thing such as expert intuition and i think people get out of flow when they're being micromanaged when people ask too many questions of course we all want to hear how to apply great makeup but if you're the bride and somebody's applying it on you the more questions you ask the more your makeup artist is going to get out of the flow. So I was very careful this morning not to ask her any questions, right? I thought, oh, better not throw her off a balance. And the same happens, you know, in normal office jobs when people are being micromanaged, when you need to justify every single thing you do, when people, rather than giving you autonomy to do your thing, people micromanage your time, people ask too many questions, or you have to involve all of your colleagues, you know, just to involve them. I see so, I have so many clients in large corporations where I see that they spend so many hours every day in useless meetings and nobody says anything because they're too polite and they think I can't say that these meetings are useless. Mm -hmm. So that's a reason why so many people that are freelancers reach a lot of flow because they don't have people that distract them and that micromanage them and that disturb them. So as a leader, you need to hire somebody who's really talented and passionate, but then you need to give them the possibility to have fun without you killing the fun, right? To, to challenge them, not too much, not too little. And then you need to give them a space where they're less distracted. There are so many open plan offices, People share their offices with so many colleagues. It's impossible to get into flow if you constantly have um, people chatting into your ear. Yeah. I see you have a nice office to yourself, and that's probably why you're productive. Thank you. Yeah, it's by design. It wasn't always yeah. like this. Can you explain a little bit about what we need to do to understand these um, parts of ourselves, where we work at our best? So some people need less challenge. Some people need more. Can you explain what people mm -hmm. look like in an organization and how some need less challenge, some need more? Yeah, that, that's a great question because there's no one size fits all. When it comes to challenge, um, you have to imagine that there's an inverse U correlation between stress and performance. So there is a little sweet spot. If you think about it, when you have very little stress, your brain is a bit bored and is thinking, okay, I'm not going to reach peak performance because this meeting is just useless. Mm -hmm. And when you have too much stress and people put a lot of pressure on you and too much pressure on you, then you have the situation where your brain also shuts down and goes into a fight or flight mode and you're so stressed that you can't think straight anymore. So you need to find your personal sweet spot and it has to lo a lot to do with the activity of neurochemicals in your brain. Let me explain. Some people have a very active dopamine system. And what I hear from you, you might be one of these people, okay? And scientists like to call them sensation seekers or dopamine junkies. So what this means is that you might need a lot more challenging situations than some of your colleagues. So while one person is already declining in performance because stress levels are getting too high, you might be still on the rise. So 
sensation seekers are people who are always looking for the next thing, for the next challenge. They do, you know, you can often find them at the top of organizations. You can often find them in investment banks or consulting companies. And while people like, you know, other people are sitting on the couch watching Netflix and eating chips, after a long week of flying around, they, you know, run a marathon and feel great because they need more. While other people have a less active dopamine system and they excel in low stress environments. And that's an important message because many people in organizations, if you ask them, they will say these are the low performers, right? These are the boring ones, the inflexible ones, but that's just not true. Think of Nobel Prize winning scientists who just focus on one molecule for 20 years and might find the cure for cancer or think about best-selling authors that just rewrite and added and added a book until it's perfect. So people have different stress points mm -hmm. and you need to know your sweet spot. You need to understand how much challenge you need in order to reach peak performance. And that's highly unique. And by the way, that is something um, quite controversial, but there is a difference between men and women here. Men and women react differently to stress and to different situations. And I think this is one of the reasons why there's so few women in leadership positions. It's because the stress point that men have combining testosterone and dopamine might be quite different from that of a woman who combines in her brain, you know, dopamine activity with estrogen activity. And so people need different work environments to perform at the best. So I'm always against coaching people and changing people. I think it's just a waste of time and energy. You should be thinking, okay, what does this specific person need in order to reach peak performance? And then you need to create and, and craft an environment that matches this person. Rather than trying to mold the person to the job, you should try to mold the job to the person. Yeah. might sound crazy, but it actually makes a lot of sense and uh, much more, you know, if you think about it, our brains are very robust. Evolution has designed our brains. Do you think it's going to change because of a coaching session? Right. You know, you need to maybe use that coaching session to build self-awareness, to know yourself, to understand what is my passion, how much stress do I need? You might you know, coaching is valuable in order to understand yourself better, to think about solutions, but not as I have it sometimes that the HR department calls me and says, we have this problematic person in our organization, Friedrich, can you coach her? I say, no, okay. I'm not going to coach somebody to change them. You need to know your stress point. And when you know your stress point, you will be much more productive. It's so true and so powerful. And we can get to that point. Yeah. So also with self-awareness, it's, it's looking at uh, the prefrontal cortex and knowing how important it is for executive functions like thinking, decision-making, and planning. And we know it's the part of our brain that determines our levels of success with our careers. What strategies do you personally do to strengthen this part of your brain so that you can operate at your higher levels of performance? Yeah. Well, to me, I, I think, well, this is something I think that has helped me a lot is that I, you know, I learned, you know, many of these things are things that lay in the past because we build our prefrontal cortex when we're children and teenagers. 
So, you know, I learned to play cello when I was a child. And that is a task that is very, very annoying because in the beginning, you're just not good at it. And you can practice and practice and practice and practice. And then after a few years, if you have my, my you know, if you're not a super prodigy, then it starts sounding kind of good. But first you need to practice. Compare this to a childhood where you just play video games and you get reward instant reward several times, you know, even the first time you play. So one way to build up your prefrontal cortex is by practicing something. Find something where you practice and where you practice a lot and where you see success when you practice and where you see failure when you don't practice. Because executive functions, they can be trained. So Even as an adult, if you start to learn an instrument or if you practice sports, it will strengthen the executive functions in your brain. With my kids, I don't give them everything right away. It's tempting. You know, we live in a society with so many, you know, you feel like I could buy them a present every day. I could give them chocolate every day. It's tempting because you see their happy faces, but it's best not to do that because it will throw off the reward system in their brain and they need to learn that they need to work for things to, to work out. If you give them everything, you ruin their prefrontal cortex. And then later in life, when you're not there anymore, they will expect the same from their surroundings. And that's difficult. So one thing is that you can train a bit like your executive functions, your willpower. Mm. For me, it's also important to understand that willpower is limited. So, I try to not waste my willpower on useless things and people and, and processes that are just not worth it. So to a certain degree, I try to simplify my life. I have five kids. I have a career. I write books. So in order to manage all of that, I say no to almost everything else. So, so that is a way because if I, you know, if I say yes to everything and I do this and I do this and I do this and by the end of the day, I'm exhausted. If I then sit down at my desk and try to write on my book, imagine the result will be a disaster because then my willpower is already depleted and then I just feel like collapsing on my couch. So you need to be wise about, you know, not wasting your willpower on things that are not worth it. Mm -hmm. Try to be efficient. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Five kids. Well, I've got two and I can barely manage them. <laughs> Thank of you course. Me. And it makes actually not much of a difference whether you have one or five, because as soon as the child is there, you're responsible. And, you you know, of course, it multiplies a little bit. But I must say I'm more relaxed now than when I had one child, because oh. you get kind of used to it. And, yeah. you know, you get into. So I think as soon as you have a child, you have a responsibility and that, ta- you know, that takes a toll on all our brains, of course. Yeah, yeah definitely something else to think about. Yeah. What do you think are some other important parts of the brain that we should understand specifically for someone looking to take new actions to create new habits for new results? Yeah, well, as soon as something new enters our brain, it has to go by our hippocampus, which is a part of our brain that is like a filter. It looks at new incoming information and it asks the question, is it really new? And is it emotionally relevant? 
That's the key question here. And what is emotional relevance? Emotional relevance is the question of whether this information will help me survive or not. So when people try to learn something new, they often think it's a rational process happening here in the prefrontal cortex and that they have to think harder. But you actually have to be emotionally involved because the hippocampus is the gatekeeper for any new information and it's seated right in the middle of our limbic system in between the nucleus accumbens for processing positive information, giving us a reward signal, and the amygdala for processing negative information. It's right in the middle, and that's not a coincidence or a mistake. It's because learning is an emotional process. So if you want to change the way you behave or if you want to learn something new, you need to be engaged emotionally Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Your brain will say, okay, I don't really need this information and it will get rid of it. See what happens many times when people take tests. They retain the information until the test is taken. And then as soon as the exam is passed, the information leaves the brain like rats leaving the ship. Why? Because the emotional relevance wasn't the content. The emotional relevance was the exam. So when people study for the exam, it might help them to study better short term. But as soon as the exam is over, knowledge is vanishing their brains. So if you really want to retain information, you better care about the content on a deeper level, not just by studying for the next exam. So have some sort of intrinsic motivation why we're... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A certain level of passion. I mean, it sounds very, you know, esoteric, but when you look at how the brain is built, learning is an emotional process. And unless you're emotionally invested, your hippocampus is just going to filter that information away. So you can even spend 20 hours physically learning at your desk and then you sleep at night and your hippocampus will transfer information from short-term memory to long-term memory while we sleep. And then the next morning it's gone. Or it's staying if you really, you know, have an interest in what you're learning. That's powerful. What, what about mindfulness and meditation? So in your book, you mentioned that mindfulness has been shown to physically change several regions of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. What does the brain change? Many, I would say it changes your entire brain. So in just eight weeks, um, you can change the thickness of your prefrontal cortex for rational thinking. So it strengthens your executive functions. So um, another thing that happens is that it... Um, enhances the thickness of the insula. The insula is a part of your brain that processes um, sensory information from the body. And why is that relevant? You would think, okay, sensory information from my body. So what? Well, our intuition is linked to that. When you hunch your shoulders and when you make a sad face, you actually, your muscles are sending important and relevant information to your brain about your well-being and, and, you know, things you like and you don't like. And when you have a good access to these feelings, you will make much better decisions. So people who have a great body awareness, which is one of the things that mindfulness is training, they get sick less often because they might realize early on, oh, I might catch a cold 
let's drink some hot lemon today rather than realizing it when it's already too late. Or they might realize that somebody is betraying them early on because they signal that whenever they're around that person, they feel stressed. And these are small things, small warning signs your body is sending to your brain. And some people realize it and some people don't. So that's, and, and another third thing that is changed by mindfulness training are the social emotional pathways in your brain. So mindfulness training makes people more empathetic. So it enhances your empathy, right? So that's powerful. It makes you think better. It, it trains your intuition and it makes you more people oriented and, and a better person basically. Wow. So I think we should all be meditating, but it still is, um, we're, especially in schools, there's that stigma. People, some schools catch on, um, working with some young people that are trying to incorporate it into the schools and it takes off in certain pockets and areas. But Yeah. And you know what? Um, I personally, I don't do the classical mindfulness meditation, even though I tell people that it's great for your brain. What I do instead is a more casual way of meditation so for example on a Sunday I leave my phone at home when I'm with my kids and we go to the forest and then I take in the smell of the fresh air after the rain um, I'm fully present here and now with my family for example and that is mindfulness right I don't have to sit down every morning for 20 minutes doing that I can just as well make a mindfulness walking experience. I can have mindful eating by really enjoying my food rather than reading my emails at the same time. I can have mindful showering if you want to. You know, you can turn any activity into a mindfulness activity. And I think many people are so busy, they don't do mindfulness because they say, 20 minutes every day? Are you insane? What should I, when should I do that? Should I sacrifice my sleep? Should I sacrifice my exercise? Should I sacrifice my spouse? You don't have to do that. I think by just being more mindful in activities you're already doing, um, it's helping a lot. I, for example, I, I work out several times a week. And when I work out, I do this in a mindful way. So my mindfulness training is my workout at the same time. And it also enhances my workout because when you actually focus on the muscles you're working on, research shows that you get much stronger much more easily. Right. So I don't think everybody has to do the classical program. If you understand the basic principles, you can integrate it into your life and just make it three minutes a day, which is better than zero minutes a day. Right. That's a powerful take. Um, and I know that we talked a little bit already about intuition with meditating. Um, there was a part in your book where you talked about um, two people, two examples of people that they didn't use their conscious brain, but their unconscious brain to increase their speed, efficiency, and accuracy of performance. So one was Sully Sullenberger with his quick thinking with that emergency landing. And the other was Wayne Gretzky who used his hockey sense to skate where the puck will be, not where it is. Can you explain what parts of the brain are responsible for that gut instinct that those two examples used rather than wishful thinking? Oh, yes. These are great examples because they show the power of expert intuition. And expert intuition is stored in a part of the brain that's called the basal ganglia. 
And the basic ganglia is where we store habits, all kind of procedural knowledge, things you do many, many times. If you prepare your coffee in the morning, every morning, I'm sure that's stored in your basal ganglia. If you play hockey and you're a professional hockey player, you develop some kind of hockey intuition, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's important to distinguish between experts and beginners. Let's say the first moment you learn how to drive a car, you do that with your prefrontal cortex for rational thinking because you don't know where the brake is and you don't know where to hit the gas mm -hmm. and you just drive and you have to fully focus on that consciously in order to not drive against the tree and once you've put in these 10,000 hours of driving and, and you know a lot of miles you drive not longer from your prefrontal cortex but from your basal ganglia and that's when you start to think that you can have a conversation while you drive uh, you can listen to music while you drive you can eat while you people do a lot of things while they drive i'm not saying it's safe i'm not saying it's good but this happens because they just drive from the basal ganglia and they use their prefrontal cortex for other things so for experts this is really relevant because Let's take somebody who has played tennis for their entire life and they're really experts at tennis. If you go to such a person and you say, oh, how do you hold the racket? Can you explain? It will throw them off balance. It will make them worse because having to think about it, they go into getting out of their basal ganglia mode, which is rather subconscious, and they go into a prefrontal cortex mode and then they start thinking and then they get worse. Well, if you ask a beginner, can you think about your body posture and you know how you're holding the racket, this will make them better. So in an organization, you have to think about, you know, is this person expert? Then don't disturb the expert. Don't ask too many questions or the expert intuition will get worse. And when it's a beginner or somebody who's new, who's just straight from university at the first job or new in a role, these people might get better if you discuss their strategies with them. To me, this happens sometimes, you know, usually my clients leave me, you know, do my thing, but sometimes they come and they say, oh, can we talk about the agenda? Why do you start off this workshop like this? Can't we turn it around? And I say, no, if we start with this exercise, we have the better workshop. Mm -hmm. I can then think of justifications, but it's more a hunch it's a gut feeling from running hundreds of workshops. So I just have a feeling what works and what doesn't. So the best thing for me, from a client perspective, is to just let me do my thing. Ask, don't ask any questions or the workshop will get worse. Mm -hmm. And this happens the same in many organizations when you ask people to justify their decisions um, everything always needs to be measured. Imagine what happens when people say, oh, I thought we should expand into China because I had a gut feeling. People will say, we're not going to invest any money based on your gut feeling. But right. probably that would be smart because if it's an expert, this person might have a good expert intuition. Wow. And, and how do you know when it's expert intuition versus wishful thinking? Oh, that's a hard one. That's the tricky part. I mean, of course, some things can be measured. So with a professional athlete, you can just see the results, right? And then you can say, does this person play better hockey or do I play better hockey? Um, 
even in an organization, you can, people have a track record of how they manage their budget, whether their initiatives tend to have a good return on investment. So I do think, you know, if somebody is successful in what they're doing, I would say, you know, this person has a good track record, let them do their thing. If they don't, of course, then you need to question it. You know, have you heard about um, chicken hatchers? You know that it's important for the chicken industry to distinguish the male and the female chickens very early on because you only need, well, which one do you need? You only need the female ones because they lay the eggs and the others, they kill them. That's not a very pretty example, but it's very hard to tell in very small chickens whether it's a man or a woman chicken. And they have these experts and they just, I think they process thousands of chickens per hour and they can't explain how they do it and they don't get it wrong. Wow. So they train for several years on, on distinguishing, the, you know, sexing the chickens mm-hmm. and they can't explain what they're doing. They just do it intuitively and they put them in two different baskets depending on what they think. And then you can, of course, let these chickens grow and see if they will, you know, what will come out. And I think if somebody is delivering great results, then you can imagine that this person is a good expert, right? And then you should let these successful people do their thing rather than questioning their every move, which unfortunately is practice in many large organizations where too many cooks mm-hmm. destroy um, the process. Mm-hmm. Very true. And that's powerful to, to even think about the fact that we can rely on our expert intuition and feel comfortable with it. Yeah. I could ask you so many more questions, but I'm just going to end with one last one. Do you think that we've missed anything that you think would help listeners to implement some hacks for peak performance to help them work smarter, better, and happier? Mm, Well, the one thing I'd really like people to leave people with is that I think you need to understand what your strengths are. So many people are unhappy in their jobs. And I think it's because they are in the wrong job. If you're great with numbers, take a job where you can crunch numbers, okay? If you're great with words, find a job where you can use their talents. You don't have to be great at everything. Research shows that actually the people who have strengths and weaknesses, but a few good strengths or spikes, deliver much more impact than somebody who has just a mediocre profile of doing a little bit of everything. So find the one thing you're really good at and then become the best person on this one thing. And then you will have great impact for yourself and your organization and it will be fun every single day. I think too much coaching has the focus on changing the individual. Of course, we should change and grow and develop as people in in terms of personal growth and and development and learning, but there is a genetic component to everything. If I don't have great social networks in my brain and I lack empathy, I can receive millions of hours of coaching. I will never be a good leader. So, you know, accept your boundaries and work on your strengths. Perfect. That's such a great ending. It's been so wonderful getting to know you. I seriously could continue and talk to you more, but 
Your book is very powerful and fascinating. I love how it offers practical tips and shortcuts that anyone can understand and then apply for improved results. And I love those end of chapter summary sections that review everything that you cover. For those who want to learn more about your work, they can find your book, The Leading Brain, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And what's the best way for someone to reach you if they want to contact you? Yeah, I think, you know, my website is called fabulous-brain.com. So fabulousbrain.com. Um, I think that's a way to reach me. You can connect on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook. I very often have some kind of fabulous brain variation because it's impossible for people to spell my name correctly. You know, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so fabulousbrain.com, that's best, I think. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Andrea. It was a real pleasure. Have a wonderful night. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.